Hello and welcome to the EG Property Podcast and the latest in our series of discussions recorded live at the MIPIM conference in Cannes. In this episode, EG's news editor Pui Guan Manch has a discussion about one of real estate's most exciting sectors, life sciences. So listen in to find out more about the UK's ambitions to become the next global science and technology superpower, how real estate can better harness that opportunity and support growth, what infrastructure is needed to support the life sciences market, and how the sector can meet the demand for future life sciences occupiers. Here's Pui introducing the session. The government has been loud in its ambitions for the UK to become the next global science and tech superpower. Uh, So I guess the question on everyone's minds is, you know, how can real estate better harness that opportunity and support growth? So here to help us dig into those questions today around what life sciences occupiers need to grow and how cities and real estate can meet those needs is our panel of experts. So joining me on stage are... Paul Singh, well, to my immediate left, Paul Singh, uh, founder of EEDN and policy lead for SMEs at the City of London Corporation. And then we have uh, Olivia Drew, director and portfolio manager for UK Life Sciences at UBS. We have Tom Mellows, head of UK Science at Savills. And Professor Jane Robinson, Pro Vice Chancellor, Engagement and Place at Newcastle University. So thank you very much for joining me, guys. It's great to have you all here. Um, I'd, I guess I'd like to start by having just a bit of a whip around uh, and asking each of you for a quick fire view on this uh, question. So sorry if I'm slightly putting you on the spot, guys. But um, what for you is the biggest barrier that is blocking the growth potential that life sciences offers? Uh, who would like to take that first? Uh, Tom, you look poised, so I'm throwing to you first. <laughs> um, I mean, that's quite a big question to start with. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I would say it's quite multifaceted. Um, you know, I, I certainly feel that th- this isn't a criticism, but I'm la- launching straight in here. Um, the sector has grown so quickly, in, and I'm talking in the UK really, but I think this probably applies to everywhere outside the US. Uh, it's grown so quickly over the last five years. We're all scrabbling around trying to work out how best to um, cater for it, help companies, but I definitely don't feel that um, we're getting everything right at the moment. These companies, I, I work closely with lots of VC-funded biotechs, and I see all the challenges they go through on this journey towards commercialization. They have all these things coming at them. They have uh, challenges around venture capital funding, uh, finding the right talent, uh, getting through a regulator processes and, and, and um, requirements from the regulator. And I think they need lots of help. These companies need lots of help, and I think we, and by we I mean you know, real estate, academia, government, are not getting all of those things right. I think there's lots of good stuff happening, like it's really good to see the R&D tax credits potentially being dealt with in the budget um, this morning. Um, but yeah, you know, we, the, more work needs to be done to support these great companies. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, and we would, there's lots of points to come back to there, I think. Um, but Jane, over to you next. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it is a big question, but I agree with Tom's point that um, th- there's no sort of single silver bullet. And in fact, that's that's the answer to the question. You know, actually what we need to be doing is to create the ecosystem that 
creates the right sort of support. So that is about the right kind of space um, and is about access to finance. But it's critically also about the having access to the right skills and talent and the right support that these businesses need to be able to grow in a competitive environment. I think there's also is a bit of a challenge um, around, and we were hearing from the minister earlier, and, and we've seen some announcements in the budget today. Um, but I, I think, sort of speaking from um, the northeast of England, that's been incredibly successful in growing very fast. You know, one of the things I would say is it's about how we kind of build that scale and compete on a global stage and join up our assets um, in the UK a little bit to be able to compete more effectively but really it's about how we can get better at joining up all of those different aspects that create the ecosystem for growth absolutely um paul i see you're ready to jump in <laughs> um, welcome everyone um, my view on this i think the last few years it's been kind of gung-ho and i reckon i think it should be you know there should be a time for reflection a bit of um sharing of data there's been a lot of data collected from you know, speculative investments, uh, uh, clustering, all the clustering that's happening, especially around London. I think we need as a life science ecosystem to, to kind of share that information and have that reset and say, where are we actually going uh, with this? Or how do we, do we to achieve what we want to achieve, all of us collectively? And that's my, my view on this right now. Great. Uh, and Olivia, last but not least. Yeah, I mean, Tom alluded to a, to a lot of it. I think, you know, on the whole, the UK is quite a good place to do early stage R&D. We've got a very, very strong academic sector and, and that early stage sees you know, slightly more support. Actually, I think the UK needs to become better at helping companies scale up and stay in, in the UK um, as they get through clinical trials and commercial products. We don't want it to lose that um, when it gets to that startup, more advanced stage to companies like the no, countries like the, the US who do a better job at supporting those those larger companies and keeping that uh, that scale of the sector uh, in 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 the UK is something I think is important for us. Yeah, we're we're definitely going to return to that point because I think that's a really interesting point. But um, I guess first off, you know, I mean, we are of course of course having this discussion uh, on the day the Chancellor presents his spring budget, uh, as Tom uh, alluded to a little bit um, earlier. And I don't know how much of a chance you've had to digest it, but you know, what did you hope to come out of it, and did you think there were any missed opportunities? I mean, notably the Oxcam arc didn't seem to be uh, in the new investment zones. So I just wonder whether it could be, you know, argued that investment should be focused on supporting developments or the creation of clusters in these regions rather than creating new research-driven clusters elsewhere. I don't know, who should I throw that to? Tom, I'll throw it to you first. <laughs> um, I, I haven't seen all the, 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 the outputs of the budget in total, but I think, um, so it's difficult to comment specifically, but I think what, what we really need is we need a, a long-term, um, re really stable strategy from government around how this sector is sort of catered for and supported. And there's been so many changes recently um, brought around by Brexit, for example. You know, that, that has not been helpful for companies. I think, you know, you can see the headwinds that they're um, having to deal with around venture capital investment as well. I think um, having more sources of capital for companies would be hugely helpful. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't say any specific policies, but I think, you know, just a long-term, really well-thought-out strategy to really underpin this sector would be very helpful. I think on you know it, it's great news on on the tax credits, but it wasn't a given, and that was actually you know in large part I think uh, there was a big lobbying effort on behalf of the industry by people like the the Bio Industry Association who did do an amazing job on that kind of thing. 
um, really kind of having to get in front of government and, and let them know that those are, that's what's important to the sector rather than that having been of a kind of proactive approach from, from the government, which I think ideally would, would change um, and, and quite quickly rather than kind of them reacting to things they've taken away and, and impacts the sector quite negatively. Um, for them to take a, a more proactive and, and collaborative approach would would increase the, the benefit of the government involvement. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd sort of, uh, you know, I challenge a bit the perception that, you know, everything should be focused around the Golden Triangle. Um, I think, you know, we can underestimate the power and potential um, of the UK as a whole if we um, disproportionately um, kind of continue to pile investment into the Golden Triangle. And, I, and also, you know, we have to recognise what do these companies need? You know, they, they need access to space, they need access to um, the people who work in them need to be able to have affordable homes. So actually, unless we are using the resources of the, the whole of the country, um, I think we're going to be missing, missing a trick. Um, I think the other thing is, um, you know, this is this is also about kind of focusing on where there are real, genuinely world-leading strengths. So, you know, I can say in um, in Newcastle and the Northeast, our partnership with the NHS, you know, um, the Newcastle University's Hospital Trust does more clinical trials uh, through the National Institute of Health Research than anywhere else in the UK. So, so let's not. Um, uh, think that everything that happens around health and life sciences um, happens um, in, uh, in, the, in the southeast. I think there are real opportunities. And that's not to say that that's not a real strength. You know, for me, this is about kind of growing the opportunity for the whole of the UK. Um, and, and the, you know, I don't like the term levelling up particularly, but I think there is something about how can we create those partnerships uh, in different parts of the UK. And I think devolution deals are a real opportunity to connect growth in health and life sciences with an agenda of addressing health inequalities, where we know that if we could close the gap on health inequalities across the north of the country, we could add over 14 billion pounds to the UK economy. So I think for me, there is that kind of added benefit about saying, you know, let's do this for the UK economy, but also let's do something that's gonna make a difference for the people who live here as well. Yeah, that's a sum that really sets things in, in perspective, doesn't it really? Um, but uh, there is still a major undersupply of uh, lab space that's underpinning demand from life sciences operators in the UK. Um, is, I, I mean, I suppose the, uh, I, maybe I know the answer to this already, but is the planning system helping to establish the groundwork for, for growth in that sector? And if not, what could be improved? Who should I, uh, Paul, would you like to pick that one up? Uh, thank you very much. Um, so I, so local authorities, for example, I think um, have a, big part to play anyway with with the planning direction that they're taking section 106 but also just deciding whether they will directly help or or provide an ecosystem to allow that help um, uh, so for example there is a massive shortage of affordable uh, prime affordable lab space for SMEs for example and I think if you're relying on private companies to get off their own backs to provide that space, it's, it's a bit dangerous. Um, and if you're relying on F um, the smaller companies, SMEs, to to drive that, unless they have really, really um, rich funders, it's going to be very hard to get that. So so it, it, the, the planning system has a massive, massive part to play to, to build on that. 
can, can I just come in on the back of that? Because I think there's a, there is a really good example of the way the Newcastle universities work with Newcastle City Council um, and legal in general on the development of our Helix site, which is a 24-acre site. It's actually at the head of a coal mine that then became um, the site of the home of Newcastle Brown Ale and is now a 24-acre uh, innovation um, site. We have the biosphere um, on that site, which was actually um, the local authority took the risk on developing that wet lab space. It is um, nearly. It is now fully occupied, largely with university spin-outs in health and life sciences. And we are looking to work now. We've done a study with JLL. We think we need another 24,000 square feet of space for those um, uh, health and life science spin-outs. So we are now working with the private sector to deliver that. And I think it's a good example of where um, a forward-looking local authority and planning authority can work in partnership with university and industry to, to sort of stimulate that demand and to create the conditions where the private sector can then invest. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, there are all these sort of conversations around uh, lab space for R&D, but maybe there's a bit less focusing on a shortage of uh, manufacturing space, and, and more traditionally, maybe that's linked with uh, industrial, you know, such as making medical devices or, you know, expensive uh, niche lab, uh, lab environment, like sort of manufacturing gene therapy. Um, so it's a, it's a super broad spectrum of spaces, really, that a wall of companies that are, are coming through are going to need, but they all seem to be in pretty short supply. So... Um, I guess my question is, how can the industry work together to provide that space? You know, is it a case of engaging more closely with the industrial sector, for example, or maybe it's about setting clearer expectations about how long it might take to, to create a, a complex manufacturing uh, facility? Uh, Olivia. Yeah, so, you know, we, we, we provide manufacturing um, facilities for companies, and I think one thing that we've been battling with since we started that process is trying to remove people's association with manufacturing in the life science sector, and particularly in advanced therapies, remove that connection with industrial, um, because the facilities are firstly incredibly expensive to build, unlike, a, unlike an industrial unit, but secondly, the amount of M&E and the level of clean air that needs to be in those facilities is significant. If you think of a typical lab space, a wet lab, it could be kind of six, eight, ten air changes. A manufacturing facility needs up to 30 air changes an hour so you can imagine the um, M&E that needs to go into a facility like that so it is it's not an industrial unit and I think people have a perception that the rents or the locations are akin to an industrial unit and it's just absolutely not the case and so the way that we can help the sector and the manufacturing sector grow in the UK is have locations that are slightly different from your key R&D locations, but are close to those R&D locations. Um, this kind of co-location between the two is, is, is a critical point, um, particularly in the advanced therapy space. And so, you know, just to tie into the planning system point, having a supportive planning environment around GMP, because there are um, parts of those facilities that are different to, to an R&D um, site. So having a supportive planning environment, which we do in, in a number of locations in the UK, 
um, and educating the whole sector around what a manufacturing facility is, how you can build one, how you can build one flexibly, because I think that puts some people off developing them because they're very expensive and a number of the companies in this space, while they're great and they have hugely exciting product pipelines, they're not generating any revenue. Um, so being able to have that flexibility piece into a facility like that, knowing you can relet that uh, in, a, in a worst case scenario. So I think it's an education point um, and a planning point uh, to help to, to grow that manufacturing sector. And that's a huge area of growth for the UK economy that I think we should all kind of be focusing on. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, is, is enough being done to sort of support you know, that growth journey from SME size and upwards. You know, I imagine a, a company's needs for physical space is going to change over time, uh, you know, in its journey to, to commercialization. So perhaps we are seeing some, well, I suppose it, it ties in with uh, Olivia, with what you're working on, where we're seeing a bit of movement in this space, aren't we, with UBS's 900 million uh, joint venture with Reef to develop uh, the uh, campus near uh, the Catapult uh, facility in Stevenage. Uh, so perhaps maybe you're best place to answer that question <laughs> yeah no it, it's a great point you know company you know what, what companies do in, in in the research and development stage you know how you actually you can create something that that works but how you actually manufacture that is is in your process development to manufacture that is quite different and and that's why that something like the catapult which you know the government has done incredibly well is is hugely important for the ecosystem because um, people like the Catapult help support companies to understand how their manufacturing process will work and they support with all of the complexities that come with manufacturing through a clinical trial and commercialization. All things around your supply chain, your regulatory approvals, the, the kind of pricing into the, into the when you actually have your end product, all of that they can help with. Um, and so I think more, more, more work around supporting early stage companies and how you actually need to manufacture it is important. Companies also realize they need manufacturing space quite late in the game. Um, so helping companies think about that earlier um, is important. And that can, you know, that can be done across a host of institutions, be that universities, incubator, accelerator facilities, uh, and things like the Catapult with, with the government. So again, it's a whole ecosystem push to, to help companies understand how they're going to manufacture their products. I mean, co correct me if I'm wrong, but there does seem to be a lot of voices involved there in the Stevenage scheme. So, I mean, I guess, how do you make sure that everyone is on the same page from the get-go, and, and how do you avoid limiting what can be delivered in, in each partner's case? Yeah, I don't, I don't want to make a, you know, a Stevenage push, but I think what, what is good about that location is that everyone is aligned in terms of the LEP, the council, the planners, GSK, the Catapult, etc. We're all kind of working towards you know an, an end goal and I think we're I think we're doing okay at having one voice um, which can be more difficult in other locations where there are lots of different um, um, players but I think you know it comes back to, the, to, to this point about about um, having the proper message coming through in incubators and accelerators and universities in helping to make sure that they can direct you on the right path to somewhere where you can do early stage manufacturing, which universities also, you know, have a huge role and do a lot already. And then, how? What's the clear route to scaling that up? Yeah, just to kind of pick up on that point, I think that's absolutely right. It is about it's about the pathway and kind of helping to anticipate and remove the barriers to uh, to growth. Um, 
I think one of the things in the nor north that we've realised is that you know you need to be able to do that collaboration. So we've established a programme called Northern Accelerator, which brings together um, uh, the universities across the north um, down to York uh, to be able to um, provide that support for um, uh, for those companies. So not just the kind of practical things about the infrastructure that you're going to need, but how are you going to actually access finance? How are you going to make that successful? And I think. One of the things we could probably get better at collectively is, is exactly that point about the pathways of how at each stage you can kind of move to that high growth and then how we retain those companies. Yeah, uh, Tom, I saw you nodding on there. What do you what do you think? <laughs> I think it's a it's a it's a big challenge. You know, um, providing R and D lab space like wet labs is hard enough for the real estate sector. This is a whole other level of complexity. But ultimately, it goes back to Liv's point right at the beginning of this session is that if we want more of our companies to turn into um, you know, companies that are actually selling something and stay in the UK, we need to solve this manufacturing problem. I think in the US, the sort of traditional model is the developer builds a shell and um, the, uh, the company goes and spends their VC money on fitting it out. But the US companies have, um, have access to huge amounts of funding that our companies just don't really have access to. So I think there's a unique challenge in... in in the UK that really needs to be tackled. Yeah. I, I mean, in, in general, is there any danger of clusters being created in areas where they might not be able to, to thrive? I mean, I feel like access to R&D and talent and capital are kind of the main linchpins of a successful scheme, really. So, um, so yeah, I'd, I'd just be interested to get your thoughts. Paul, I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, this goes back to the point of data, which is, um, so there's going to be winners and losers. And, um, you know, just... It's 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 a hard one to to to, to speak about, but um, yeah, if if for example there is a there people focus on a certain cluster and it turns out to be let's say a failure, um, it also depends on how that building is built and how that cluster is made. If those buildings are repurposed or they're built to be flexible, sustainable, then yes, okay. Say if that cluster doesn't work, it can be converted to something else, offices or or something like that. So, but I think. You're only going to find where, whether it's successful if you try, if you go out there and, and actually do it. And, and that's, uh, that's just thinking about the, the high-level uh, life science uh, ecosystem. That's the, the best thing. But obviously, if you're looking at the individual companies, when they fail, they go bust, and it's a, it's a hard one. The investors, you know, they lose their money. But if you're looking at the wider aspect, it is better for the life sciences industry if we just try. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say, going back to um, Jane's point about... Um, uh, you know where where the money is best spent and where in the UK and it not just all being about the golden triangle there is amazing science being done in all sorts of locations around the UK and I think this is a role for government to, to um, you know replicate what they've done in Stevenage with uh, the cell and gene therapy catapult is look at where that money is best spent and look at targeting it at the right locations there's no point in spending it somewhere that is a, a test bed location you know it needs to be focused around where the science is best, the academia is best, and the companies are starting to grow. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Jane, I saw you nodding there. <laughs> I just wondered what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, I, th I, I think that, 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 that sense of, you know, we have got excellence in different parts of the UK, but there's no doubt that, you know, we have certain parts where that there is that um, academic strength. So um, uh, in the Northeast, we have one of eight academic health science centers, for example. Um, uh, 
I think what's interesting is 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 really sort of thinking about how we can um, sort of build on those those partnership models and leverage those those partnerships. And I think the Stevenage model is a really interesting one because actually that place-based connection to um, the local authority, mayoral combined authority, the, the, the LEP and so on with the universities, but also working with um, the NHS is, is really, really important as, as part of this because, you know, they are, they are a huge, um, actually drive a lot of research as well. So our partnership with um, the Hospitals Trust is a really important part of that. So, so yeah, I mean, I think the other thing I would say is I, I do think that there is a challenge around scale. Um, and I think, you know, when we talk about what happens in, in, in the US, the sort of scale is vast compared to what we, we, we can talk about. And certainly, you know, as a city, Newcastle in isolation, you know, probably needs to be joining up with other places um, to be able to sort of say how we can add, add, add value. But I would say that it's about those really being focused about those specialisms where you can say, actually, in, in, in Newcastle, so as an example around sort of uh, diagnostics, healthy ageing, these are areas where we can genuinely say we are, wor we are world leading. How can we then connect with what's happening in, um, in York, in Leeds, in, in Edinburgh, and in Manchester to be able to sort of say there's a critical mass here that you can you can really pitch that on a global stage. So so I think yes, focus on places where there are strengths, but also identify opportunities for making connections between those places if we're going to position this on a global stage. Uh, the and just just to add a point on that. So um, the speculative elements in Canary Wharf, for example. Um, there's, you know, it's called speculative, but it's a calculated risk. But at least we'll get, we'll understand whether Canary Wharf, for example, is a clusterable area. So that's a word. So, so, um, uh, um, obviously, uh, uh, yeah, he's just leaving. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry uh, yeah. So um, that's the development by Cadans, and obviously, I think there's other people involved um, coming in, and I think that that's really, um, uh, really helped us understand this. Yeah. I mean, you did kind of preempt my next uh, question, really, which is really just to ask whether there's any danger of sort of life sciences spaces being too remote or distant from amenities. I mean, is there a need to bring these clusters closer to sort of town centres and amenities to enhance its social benefits uh, for occupiers and, and retain talent? But also, how does that balance with the sort of unique needs um, of a life sciences property, you know, in order to operate? Uh, for, for my, I think it's horses for courses. I think there are some some companies that will always want to be on a, on a science park. They've grown up in that in that cluster in that area, and 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 they want to be there. But I think there's a huge amount of of occupiers who do want a city centre. You know, we've we've spoken about talent and retaining and attracting talent. You know, they a big part of that is 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 loving where you work, and for some people that is in a city centre. But that being said, you know, there's people doing amazing things across science parks in the UK as it relates to taking the amenity there. Um, loads of things you can do around wellness, fitness, talks, you know, making an ecosystem and connectivity on, on a campus. And that can work much better for people who, you know, there could be a nursery on site, there could be all of everything you need on, on one kind of science park environment. So I think there's amenity that you can make work on a science park, but I think you need to have a proper strategy and have considered that and make it a place that people want to work. And then obviously in, in a city centre, you're probably, you, you might be paying more to be in a city centre, but you benefit from the amenity already being on your on your door. So it's kind of a trade-off and, and both models work for different companies. 
yeah, yeah, I mean, if I, 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 I think Olivia's absolutely right. It is horses for courses. So um, our Helix site is a is a, a, a city centre location. We make a, a deliberate sort of point of saying it's kind of connecting. There are students on site. There are restaurants as residential. It's a mixed use development. Um, if I can, just a very quick plug for you know our next big regen scheme is a 29-acre brownfield site called the Campus for Aging and Vitality, which will be about creating a new health innovation neighbourhood in the heart of the West End of Newcastle, um, and and that will be about developing and testing new products and services for the longevity economy and enabling people to living healthier and longer lives. So it's absolutely vital that that is part of that community in the West End of Newcastle. But we will be innovating and testing products and services that will be going out onto a global marketplace. So in that instance, I absolutely expect that to see, see that very much connected in place and in that area. So, and if anyone wants to know more about that, please do let me know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that, Jane. Um, Paul? Um, yeah, so um, we can also consider how a life science cluster or ecosystem can, ben can solve some of the um, problems that we're having on the high street. So f with footfall, so, you know, this concept of science for show, um, and and getting you know, going beyond the the healthcare testing sites a bit boring, um, but having you know for example showcasing the tech that's involved the AI, um, getting school children to come to those retail units if you're showcasing it, um, because pretty much there's real at this moment there's no real appetite uh, to to repurpose uh, retail spaces into good labs because obviously there's problems with with um, the actual the thing for doing that so we can actually solve a problem of footfall and also promote the industry promote people's skills gaps get people in there school children in there just to showcase the, the industry so yeah that's um, something we need to consider great thank you um with that um it's time to turn to the audience to see if they've got any questions for our panelists hi um just wondering because obviously it's such a specific end use uh like you were saying it's quite hard to have that speculative and flexibility uh built in uh is there a sort of industry standard specification uh for life sciences um which could give you that kind of categorization i mean i would say there's a lot of mystery in in this and we quite like it that way in, in, in to some degree I would say um, with uh, laboratories, R&D laboratories, wet labs, for example, there is certainly, uh, um, they certainly can be very generic, um, you know, far more generic than an office space, for example. Um, a, a laboratory is lab benching, it's probably white walls, it's a vinyl floor, it's pretty standard. I would say when you go into um, manufacturing, it becomes very, very bespoke and, you know, it's very difficult to create a generic model. I mean, it has been done at the Catapult and Stevenage, for example, but it's much harder, much harder. I, I would add it, it, it it's, it's harder, um, but not impossible. And it, it's newer in the UK, but where we've got to on, on our sites is, is you know, we, anything we develop, anything that we develop at, at our cost is something that we can relet to, to the next occupier. Um, and, and Tom's right, you know, that is, that is definitely a bigger journey that we've been on on that side of things than on the R&D side of things. Um, but, but is possible, just, just more expensive to do to incorporate the flexibility for, for companies to use flexibly going forward. But it's not, there's not an industry, there's not a kind of book you can download that, that's got that. That's, uh, you know, that's taken a while to get to that position. Benjamin, I've got a very good answer for you. So um, um, there's a consortium of 10 companies, including my one, Eden, um, working with, uh, including MedCity, um, 
and our other real estate players. So we're developing a online tool um, to kind of, uh, in the same mold as the BCO uh, standard for offices, but for real estate, sorry, for life sciences buildings. Uh, so an existing, someone with an existing building can see whether their, um, their, their building is repurposable in, in that sense. And someone, in a, we're going to do a basic spec for new developments, and that's a free online tool. And, it's, and we're going to be launching a report on, in June with that. Um, I can give you more details, details if you catch me about that. Okay, thank you. I look forward to seeing the report. With that, I think it's probably uh, time we wrap up. Uh, and for more on all things life sciences, uh, this is a plug of my own now, um, we have a scientific superpower conference taking place on the 28th of June at the QE2 Conference Centre in Westminster in London. It promises to be a great event. So for more details, please see our website, eg.co.uk. <laughs> okay, plug over. But um, many thanks, uh, Olivia, Paul, Jane and Tom for a very thought-provoking session. There's a lot to get our teeth into there. So yeah, please um, join me in thanking our panel. Thank you. Thank you.